welcome to this year's Nils Klim Conversation. And I'm here with Frederik Poulsen, who's the 2020 Nils Klim Laureate. And Frederik, a warm welcome to you and a warm congratulations on being this year's Laureate. Thank you, Anne. And I should say to our viewers that this year, everything is a little bit different, the year of the pandemic. So Frederik and I are actually not sitting uh, in the same place. Frederik, you're in Copenhagen in Denmark and I'm in Bergen in Norway. Um, but I'm pleased nonetheless that it was possible for us to have this conversation today. So Frederik, you and I, we both work uh, in the field of Hebrew Bible studies, which is also sometimes uh, called the Old Testament. And I think uh, the Bible is very familiar to most of our viewers, but perhaps the academic study of the Hebrew Bible in a university setting is probably less familiar to most people. So just to get our conversation today started, can you tell us a little bit about what it is that your field is about, our field is about, and also when you do your research, what is it that you actually do? In the Nordic countries, uh, the academic study of the Bible belongs to the field of theology. And generally speaking, theology is about Christianity in past and present. And in my faculty, for instance, we have three sections, one on church history, one on systematic theology, uh, and one on biblical studies. And that's where I belong. And there uh, we study uh, the Bible and now also the Quran. And when we study the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, we do it in Hebrew. And those who study the New Testament do it in the Greek version. And um, recently we had a professor in uh, the Quran and Islamic study. And of course he studies the Quran in Arabic. So, um, and in fact, I, I brought the book that I use uh, practically uh, every day this, uh, it's called Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia, and it is the um, text critical version that we use. And as you can see, uh, it is in Hebrew. You have the text and you have uh, text critical notes as well with variation in the ancient manuscripts and proposals for uh, different readings. Uh, and my job at the university is really to study and interpret this very text. Uh, and I also have a job as teacher where I uh, teach theology students how to read and interpret uh, the text. And uh, Biblia Hebraica uh, Stuttgartensia uh, contains uh, texts from antiquity, uh, perhaps around 2,500 years old, uh, religious uh, texts. And when we read and interpret them, uh, we need two things, at least. Uh, we need some basic knowledge uh, about the, the society uh, in which these uh, texts emerged. Uh, and we also need uh, interpretive skills in order to be able to translate the text and to uh, evaluate different um, textual uh, traditions and to really do meticulous um, interpretation of the words and sentences and so on. So, so on. Um, but I, it's important also to mention that uh, 
the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, as we call it in our religious tradition, is actually more things at the same time. Because it's a collection of ancient texts from ancient Judaism, but it is also a collection of texts that are read and interpreted in religious communities today, in the synagogue and in the church. So on the one hand, it is a collection of sources to an ancient religion. And on the other hand, it is uh, canonical scriptures to religious people today. Uh, and this has sometimes uh, caused some tensions within scholarship. Uh, what is the Hebrew Bible Old Testament and what should we do? What is the primary focus of our investigation? Is it a historical study or a theological uh, study? And in my view, I'm perhaps more pragmatic. I, I think both perspectives are really relevant. And uh, in many ways, what I do is uh, try to understand the Old Testament text in various contexts. And at the university, I believe we, we focus on, uh, on, on some key areas, uh, history, literature, uh, reception. Uh, and history or the historical context are some of the obvious questions. I mean, who wrote these texts? Uh, when were they written? Where were they written? Why were they written? And here we need to gain all the knowledge we can from uh, the, uh, all the knowledge about the ancient societies from archaeology, uh, from geography, everything that can help us to understand uh, the people who wrote these texts and the societies they lived in. But we also study uh, the Old Testament as literature because it contains so many different texts and different genres. We have narratives, we have poetic texts, we have prophetic texts, we have wisdom literature. And there we, we use some of the uh, approaches from, uh, from um, the general study of literature, narrative, uh, how, what is the plot, um, how are the characters described. And in poetic text, we focus on images and metaphors. Uh, how does this text work as a text? But we also look at the reception. How has this text been read and understood and interpreted through at least 2,500 years? Perhaps at the university we focus mostly on the ancient context, but also, and this is, um, there are coming more and more studies now about uh, all history of reception of the Bible in religious communities and in culture, broadly speaking. I mean, literature, film, uh, music, uh, cookbooks, very different uh, areas where the Bible turns up because in our part of the world, it, is such, it has been such an important uh, book uh, for our culture and society. That is very interesting. Um... And I was just wondering, just to follow up on what you said, you, you mentioned you need knowledge and you need interpretative skills to, to work with these texts. So just to give an example of what it is that you do in your everyday research, would an example of these interpretative skills be, for instance, uh, literary analysis um, or uh, analysis of, of poetic texts? Uh, that, that would be 
an example of the interpretative skills that you apply to these texts? Certainly it could be. And the study of the Bible is really interdisciplinary at its heart. Because the object of our study is a book and a collection of texts. But what we do is to use many different approaches and methods, and often from different scientific fields, in order to uh, cast new light on the ancient texts and to um, reveal new things in them that we have not seen before. I see. Well, another thing that, that I really have been meaning or wanting to ask you is, I mean, when you look at our field that you've described uh, just now, it, it is in many ways a niche field. In Denmark, where you're based at the moment, uh, I think there are five permanent researcher positions at university doing Hebrew Bible studies. And here in Norway, Royarem, it's roughly the same, perhaps a few more. So it, it really is a, a small field. So how on earth did you end up here, uh, both doing Hebrew Bible uh, research, but also what was it that interested you in becoming a researcher in the first place? As many others within this field, I have a religious background. Uh, my mother is a pastor in the Danish church, and my grandfather is a pastor as well, and theologian and archaeologist, and worked a li lifelong as a researcher at my faculty. Uh, and my father's family is religious as well. My wife is a pastor and my father-in-law is a pastor as well. And this is not unfamiliar for people working in theology that they have a religious background. But at home, I think, we, discuss, we more discussed theologians than theology. So when I, uh, in the last year of high school, uh, decided to apply for theology and study theology, I really didn't know much about uh, theology and biblical, uh, uh, biblical studies as an academic uh, discipline. And I think during the first year of theology, I constantly thought, is this the right place for me to be? And I, perhaps because it's, it's, a, it's a field with a very strong identity and you read a lot of texts uh, which forces you to ask questions about yourself and who you are. Um, but my interest, in, my interest in the Old Testament uh, actually began when I learned Biblical Hebrew. And I believe we had the same teacher, uh, Karen Martens, uh, a beautiful and very inspiring woman. Uh, and when I learned this language, Biblical Hebrew, it was, it's one of those moments in your life, I think, where you experience that a completely new world opens in front of your eyes. That, that was my experience when I learned Biblical Hebrew. That through this rare Semitic language, I had access to a true treasure of texts. And of course, you can always ask, why do you need to study the old text in their original languages? Don't we have good translations in Danish or English and so on? And perhaps we could compare this to the study of Shakespeare or Goethe, 
where you can say the same, why study it in English and German if you have good translation in Danish or Norwegian? And of course you can do that. And there are many good analyses of text based on translation. But if you really want to grasp what is going on in the text, you need to master the language they are written in, in order really to, to, to study them. And for me, uh, learning Biblical Hebrew just opened a new world, a fascinating literary world. And learning Hebrew, which all theology students do in Denmark, is not easy. And perhaps that also tricked me that this is difficult. And uh, I'm not that good at languages, so, uh, and I'm still struggling every day, in fact, in order to understand this rare language, but it, it just tricked me. Um, so uh, learning the language and focusing on the text is just uh, what I like to do and try to master this field. And I, you probably share the same uh, experience as I do that the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible just has everything. I mean, if you're interested in ancient cultures and ancient empires like those in Egypt or, ba uh, or Babylon, the Old Testament is the right place to go. If you're interested in world-class literature, moving stories and, and uh, fascinating poetry, the Old Testament is the, way, uh, is, is the place to be uh, or, or uh, is the book to read. And if you're interested in, in the religious heritage of, of Europe, then the Old Testament, I mean, it's treasured by Jews and Christians and Muslims. So uh, it's really a key to understanding many things in our world today. And for me, the Old Testament is not only a window into an ancient culture, but also a window to my own culture. I, I believe I understand my culture better when I read and study uh, the Old Testament. And a life as a researcher is really good because you have time to focus, you have time to concentrate, you have time to go into detail. Uh, and as a researcher in, uh, in the Bible, you're not just, your job is not just to apply new methods or to see new things in the text that have not been observed uh, observed before, you're also a custodian. You take care of a rich tradition and you uh, pass it on to the next generation. And I think that that's what I like about what I do, this custodian job. Uh, and as you said, there are only uh, five positions in Denmark at the moment, university positions uh, with researchers studying the Old Testament. Uh, and in a way, I feel we have a double obligations. And I think many of our colleagues in the Nordic countries uh, feel this way, because on the one hand, you need really to focus and specialize and enter into an international dialogue about text interpretation and understanding the Bible and so on. But on the other hand, you also need to address a broader Danish audience in order to introduce them to the Bible and to this fascinating world, you need to write introductions and textbooks and participate in the translation of uh, 
the Old and New Testament into modern Danish or modern Norwegian or modern uh, Finnish or Swedish or um, uh, and so on. And that's what I also like about what I do, that because I am from a small country with a small language, I have this double obligation, both to be one uh, specialized and um, um, corresponding with people all over the world, but also being a local expert and helping uh, Danes to, to understand the, the Bible. I like that image of Hebrew Bible scholars as uh, almost guardians of, uh, of secret knowledge. I'll, I'll keep that in mind. Um, you mentioned one thing that I'd like to follow up on, which is that when you read ancient texts like the Hebrew Bible, or any text basically, it forces you to ask questions about yourself all the time, if I understood you correctly. Will you say a little bit more about that? How does that work? Many of the texts in the Old Testament address very basic issues about who is God, who are we, what is the world that we inhabit like. And of course, when I read these texts, I am the interpreter. It's me reading them. But sometimes I have a feeling that the texts serve as a kind of mirror of a kind of mirror where I see myself or see reflection of myself in the texts. So in a way, the text becomes the interpreter and I'm the interpreter. So I see my life or my thoughts or my whole existence mirrored in the text. I see. Thank you. Frederick, the title of your current research project is uh, Tales from a Strange Land. And it's a two-year postdoc Uh, project. It's um, funded by the Carlsberg Foundation in Denmark. And uh, in this project, you look at aspects of uh, assimilation, sense of belonging in uh, a number of selected Hebrew Bible texts. So you look at the Joseph story from the book of Genesis, you look at the book of Esther, the book of Daniel, and also the apocryphal book of, uh, of Tobit. Um, so will you tell us a little bit more about this research project that you're practically in the middle of, and also what it is that you hope to find. My current research project concerns opportunities and challenges in foreign lands. It's about relations to the homeland and to hostland cultures, and many of those dilemmas that we are in when we are in, in, uh, in foreign countries. Um, Uh, and we have stories in the Bible, as you said, the story about Joseph and his brothers. They end up in Egypt. We have the story about Esther and Mordechai, who live at the Persian court. And we have the story about Daniel and his friends, who live at the Babylonian court. And these biblical stories, in many ways, show some of the dilemmas that Uh, people are in when they live outside their home uh, land. Constantly, they need to negotiate issues about identity, culture, and religion. And my general idea of this project is that the characters serve as a kind of role models 
or illustrations of different ways that you can live as a Jew in a non-Jewish culture. I'm really looking forward to see the results of that project. And um, one of the things that I find interesting is how strong a thematic a link there is between the project you're working on now and then what was your former research project in a way, which was another postdoc project um, which resulted in a monograph that was published by Moore Siebeck uh, last year in 2019. And it was done the concept of exile in the book of Isaiah in the Hebrew Bible, where you describe um, the black hole, as you call it, in Isaiah. So will you say a bit more about the links between that project and what you're working on now, but also it seems that you're in a way focusing on these concepts of um, the sense of belonging, on being away from home, uh, as you said before, uh, being in a strange land and how to, to deal with that. And um, what is it that fascinates you so about these, sub, uh, these topics, but also what is it that makes them so uh, pertinent to a study of the Hebrew Bible? Exile itself, I think, is a very interesting concept. What does it mean to be far away from home? And as you said, it is really a key theme in the Old Testament. But in our culture, I believe, it's also a strong image for existential concerns. That you feel that you are not in the right place. That you, even at home, you perhaps do not feel at home. So I think this is why I, I began working on the concept of, of um, exile. Earlier, I, I studied a different representation of Jerusalem in the Old Testament. And of course, in some texts, Jerusalem is destroyed and the inhabitants are forced away into uh, exile. And uh, good colleagues uh, at the department, uh, Ingrid Yelm, and you yourself uh, chaired a research group uh, some years ago about uh, exile. And um, so um, I gained a lot of inspirations and ideas uh, from you. Well, that's lovely to hear. I, the research group you mentioned um, on exile and identity, um, we, we decided to, uh, to work on that back in the day because we saw it as a uh, as a key theme in the Hebrew Bible, um, exactly the, the theme of Jerusalem being destroyed, the people being away from home, and so on, as you've mentioned. Um, would you say that it's the key, te key theme in the Hebrew Bible, or is that going too far? Uh, it is certainly a key theme, no doubt about that. And uh, I believe it goes back to a very essential experience or event in the early 6th century BCE, that is 2,600 years ago, the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem, which in the ancient world was a little like 9-11, I believe, in our time. Uh, the destruction of a temple, of a symbol, which meant that a whole, uh, a symbol collapsed and uh, the worldview collapsed. So new questions were asked 
And uh, so, and if you look at abiding implications of the destruction of the temple in 587 BCE, I think they are two very important. The first one is texts. If you want to produce text, destroy a temple. Because many of the texts in the Old Testament reflects on this very event or experience. We have historical accounts of how the Babylonian army arrives and destroys the city. We have poetic texts, uh, psalms and uh, lament, uh, uh, psalms that mourn the destructions. And we have prophetic texts that attempt to formulate a new hope for the people after the destruction uh, of Jerusalem. So that's, that's the first implication. A lot of text, again, contained in this book that we study. And the other thing, the, the other very important implication of the destruction uh, was that uh, Jews were spread all over the Middle East. Of course, some stayed by the ruins of the destroyed city. Others fled to the surrounding areas. Some fled to Egypt and others were forced away to Babylon uh, to work there. And what happened was that they stayed. Even though, as far as we can see from historical evidence, even though they, a couple of generations later, had the opportunity to return to the uh, homeland of their ancestors, they chose to stay. And that meant that Judaism developed as a culture or religion uh, with uh, small settlements or societies in a lot of different uh, areas. So again, it, that's my project at the moment, Jews in a non-Jewish setting. And as far as we can see, uh, outer markers were used in order to strengthen the identity as a Jew, uh, circumcision, for instance, um, some uh, dietary habits, um, uh, Sabbath observance, and, um, and the prohibition against mixed marriages in order to secure the group or the ethnicity of the group. But also the religion changed because back in the old days, back in Jerusalem, the temple was the very center of religion. And religion was in fact to make offerings, animals or bread or something to Yahweh, to God in the temple. But what do you do if you don't have a temple? Then you need to develop or strengthen new kinds of uh, religious practices. So prayer, uh, Torah study, uh, that is text study, and uh, interpretation became some of the new central elements in uh, ancient Judaism. And in fact, these are the very elements that we encounter today. If you go in the synagogue or if you go to a, a Christian church Sunday morning, that will be some of the very basic uh, religious practices, prayer, uh, reading texts, interpreting uh, the exposition of, of texts. So in a way, the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem in 587 can hardly uh, 
be underestimated or overestimated. Uh, it is really an important event in the Bible and in the development of Judaism and later Christianity. Right. These topics that you mentioned now, uh, people being driven away from home because of war, destruction, uh, having to live in a new country, having to assimilate and so on. I mean, these are clearly topics that are highly, highly relevant in our world today, uh, in the social and political environment that we're in now. Um, so is there a connection between these 2,500 year old texts and the social political landscape that we see today? Is there something in year 2020 that we can actually learn from the Hebrew Bible? My current project is certainly inspired by the world we live in today uh, because migration is such an important issue. Uh, my focus at the moment is more uh, taking uh, terms or methodology or looking at experiences today uh, and then go back to the ancient text in order to read them and perhaps, per, uh, perhaps observe uh, things in the text that have remained unnoticed until now, patterns or observations. But the other way around goes as well, because the texts we have are full of images and words and language that might serve as an important resource to think about these matters. We have touching stories about people and how they deal with issues. Uh, suddenly there's a, a, a daughter-in-law from the people on the other side of the river that we don't like. And what do we do now? So in a way, stories that, that are similar to experiences we have uh, uh, today. And in the Nordic countries, uh, we are in a corner of the world which has been shaped uh, by the Bible. Uh, and I'm interested if this does affect the way we consider migration uh, or the res responsibility as hosts or the whole idea of hospitality. Do we see roots from our religious heritage in the way we speak about it? Um, I think an important point in Christianity, partly developed uh, from a biblical texts, for instance, uh, the Psalms, is that we are all travelers. We are all travelers. We are all strangers in the world. Uh, this is at least a possible reading of the Adam and Eve story in Genesis. They are forced outside uh, the garden uh, or outside of, of, uh, of paradise so that our very forefathers, according to the Bible at least, uh, were banished from their home uh, to live in a brutal world outside of it. Um, and in the laws of Moses, for instance, there is a constant reminder that you need to take care of foreigners because you yourself was a foreigner in Egypt. So we, we have, again, words or commandments in this old religious heritage that might have shaped the way we think about it. And as I said, my, most, my focus at the moment is migration in the Bible. But later, I really hope to address the issue about the Bible among migrants. 
because I believe that it really plays a crucial role for many migrants or Christians from Africa or Asia uh, uh, coming into our societies, that in order for them to understand their new situation, they go to the Bible. So at the moment I study migration in the Bible, but hopefully later I will be able to study the Bible among migrants. Sounds very interesting. So we're all wandering Arameans like Father Abraham. <laughs> yes, that's true. You mentioned how in your current project you're using insights and experiences from the modern world uh, to illuminate Hebrew Bible texts. Can you give us just one example of how that works? Um, one way you can do it is that you can, you can go to theory and method developed in scientific approaches that concern migration today. And a field that I find particularly interesting is diaspora studies. You know, diaspora is people who live uh, abroad uh, permanently, but still have some kind of connection to the land of uh, origin. And since the 1980s, they have developed a lot of uh, concepts and, uh, and tools you can use in order to analyze this phenomenon today. And what I do is to, to take those tools and then try to apply them to the ancient text in order to see uh, if they can reveal uh, something about these, uh, these questions to us. Um, but experience could, uh, uh, could also be, uh, um, if you read uh, the Joseph story or the Book of Ruth, stories where um, people are being trafficked or are really uh, uh, vulnerable in the societies that they live in, uh, perhaps such experiences in the Bible can be illuminated by looking at experiences today of women being trafficked uh, to, uh, and work uh, uh, in foreign places. Um, That's a really good point. And of course, when you say that, the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, in a way, he's also an example of, of human trafficking. Uh, when he's sold off to Egypt. Interesting. You mentioned um, a few minutes ago how Adam and Eve are the original refugee, refugees in a way when they're sent out of Eden. And tomorrow there is the Nils Klim seminar. Um, and the title is, if I remember correctly, Beyond Eden. Outside Eden. Outside Eden, I do apologize. Um, and um, and there you've had the opportunity to invite a couple of colleagues from our field to discuss a topic with you. And um, you've invited uh, Professor Christian Joachimson from uh, MF School of Theology in Oslo and also uh, senior lecturer Casey Strine from the University of Sheffield in the UK. And together you are going to uh, discuss exactly outside Eden. Um, are you, will you tell us just a little bit more about what you would like to uh, to discuss tomorrow during the seminar, what you're hoping that your um, that your conversation, the three of you, what it will lead to. The Bible contains numerous stories about migration and life among foreigners. And as as you mentioned, Adam and Eve are uh, driven out of Eden, and uh, the old patriarch Abraham and his family travel as strangers, and even Moses is a kind of exilic figure because his home is in the wilderness 
outside of civilization. So my idea with this seminar is to gather uh, uh, colleagues to discuss broadly the issue of migration in the Bible as a, um, as a literary motif uh, and uh, reflections that we find uh, in uh, the Bible. And uh, Casey Strine will uh, study uh, the David story and how uh, David, the famous king of Israel, uh, is a, a asylum seeker and a refugee. Uh, and uh, our colleague uh, Christine Jorkimsen uh, in Oslo will address issues about hospitality and the very risk involved in hospitality in the book of Ruth. And uh, I myself will uh, talk about two of perhaps the most famous uh, figures uh, in uh, the Old Testament, Cain, the older brother of Abel, and Jonah, uh, the one with the fish. Uh, because um, migration or movement or flight is such an essential uh, theme in these uh, stories. In, in, uh, we often forget, but half of the story about Cain and Abel is actually the punishment of Cain, where he is punished to live as a wandering fugitive or a norwenot, as it's called in, in Hebrew. There's a wordplay there. So he is condemned to a life as an internal refugee, constantly moving around uh, without any secure base. And Jonah is also uh, a man or a character who is on the flight. He, he tries to flee from the task uh, that uh, God wants him to do, uh, pronounce a judgment in Nineveh. So he flees. Uh, and he takes a boat and uh, he's even thrown into the water and sinks down to the very uh, bottom or the very roots of the mountains. Uh, so there you see motive, motives of movement or migration in different ways. And what I hope that the conversation will uncover is uh, nuances, that, that, that we become aware uh, in how many ways uh, migration is portrayed in the uh, in the uh, Old Testament, and I hope that uh, me uh, that I and our uh, and my colleagues uh, will be able to show the richness of perspectives on this issue uh, in uh, in the Bible. That sounds fascinating, and I must say that also very promising for our understanding of these texts, because you could say in the Hebrew Bible there are a set of what you'd call the the classic. Uh, exilic text, the classic uh, diaspora text that where sort of everyone in the scholarly community agrees that that these texts are about these uh, topics. But some of the texts you mentioned for tomorrow, like Jonah, uh, Genesis 4 about Cain and Abel, are not in that canon in a way. Um, so, so I'm sure you'll really be able to bring out something new in your conversation. I'm, I'm looking very much forward to it. So Frederick, we're sitting here today because you're this year's Nils Klim Laureate. And this, of course, is a great honor. It's a great achievement and it's a wonderful testament to your scholarship and to you as a scholar. Um, what does it mean to you to be the Nils Klim Laureate? And how do you think that it's going to impact your career in the future? It is a great honor and I'm very happy 
about. I see it as an acknowledgement of me as a researcher and my scholarly achievements through the last 10 years, but I also see it as an important acknowledgement of our scholarly field. And historically, there has been a very strong tradition for reading the Bible critically in the Nordic countries. In Copenhagen, for instance, we had Franz Buhl in the 19th century and early 20th century, and we had Johannes Pedersen. And in the 1990s, we were famous for the Copenhagen School uh, of Biblical Studies. And uh, at the moment, we have ongoing research projects on Dead Sea Scrolls and Aramaic texts and so on. So I really consider the, the Nils Klim Award also as an important acknowledgement of uh, our uh, scholarly field. And um, I'm the first theologian to receive the prize. And if there should be any doubts that biblical scholars do not meet the standards, the general standards of academia, I see this prize as a clear witness that certainly we do. And um, theology and uh, biblical studies is just as critical as other disciplines in the university. Safe to say that you're a very strong ambassador for our field, definitely. I hope to be. And you ask about impacts on my future career. Uh, first of all, it's a motivation to continue. Hopefully it's also uh, an inspiration for others who struggle with learning Hebrew and are perhaps in the very early years of a research career uh, to see that it is really possible to achieve something great and to be honored uh, for it. And for me as a researcher, it gives me visibility. And I believe also um, it makes me a strong and uh, competitive applicant uh, when I apply for uh, grants and money for research projects. Because that is a condition now, uh, I'm sure you feel the same, that if you want to develop a field, you need to apply for external funding in order to hire PhD students and postdocs and really create a network and an environment for critical studies and inspiration. And therefore, I'm very grateful for the Nils Klim Prize because it will be a strong testimony to the qualities, uh, as, uh, to, to my qualities as a researcher. Well, as you know, the, the Hebrew Bible community in a way, uh, the global community um, is, is a bit like a family because as we talked about earlier, there aren't that many of us uh, even worldwide. And, and, and I can say we're all very proud of you for, for achieving this. In many ways, uh, Frederick, um, you're a very impressive person. I mean, you're um, you're a prolific uh, scholar, and, and you're you're very productive. And one of the things that I always feel a bit struck by when I look at your CV is, and I've I've studied it closely before this interview, of course, um, it's the fact that you've already published uh, three books, three uh, monographs published at, at very very esteemed uh, publishing houses. 
Um, and I always wonder, how on earth do you manage to be so productive? Um, maybe you can give us a bit, a few tips. Are there particular things that you do, or perhaps other things that you that you are careful not to do? There are certainly many things that I'm not good at. Uh, I have no absolutely no multitasking skills. I can't I can't do two things at the same time. Just ask my wife. I'm just confused when I try. Uh, but perhaps the talent I have is to stay focused and efficient uh, when I work. Uh, I have a good home office where I like to be and work. And perhaps I'm also a little old school. Um, in the morning, I, I just sit with the texts. I have a notebook and a pencil. And um, my computer is turned off. Um, also to resist some temptations, because if the computer is turned on, it's so easy to check your mail or to uh, shop for new shoes on Amazon and so on. Uh, but I have also been fortunate because uh, I have received research grants, individual scholarships, which have allowed me time to think and write. And without those scholarships, I would never, it would never have been possible for me uh, to, uh, to, to uh, complete these uh, monographs. Then I would have taught students or supervised and all the other very important things at university. But I have been fortunate to have these, um, these scholarships to, to focus my time on, on research and, and writing. I think I have two advices though. Um, the first one is, don't be afraid to say no. Uh, that's very important. Don't be afraid to say no, because many want your time. Uh, couldn't you write a chapter for this book? Or couldn't you give a talk? Or couldn't you be part of this research network? And so on. And of course, you are always flattered when people ask you and, and want your time. Um, but you also need to protect your own time so that you uh, so that you have time to do what you really like and what gives you energy and not end up with a lot of tasks that you in the end don't really like uh, doing and i uh, participated in a, a talent program at the university of copenhagen last year the ucph forward program uh, and a very good thing I learned there is the concept of a nobody. Uh, a nobody is a person whose uh, single role is to say no. So if I'm asked to do something and I consider it, oh, it's, this is very fascinating and I like the one who asked me and I really want to do this, then you can call your nobody and your nobody will say, no, you shouldn't do that. And of course then, no, I can't. That's the first advice. And the, the second one is don't work too much. Don't work too much. And this has to do with uh, the idea of sustainability or a sustainable research career. Uh, I am 36 years old. I will probably be working in this field for 40 or 50 years. Uh, and in order to maintain my curiosity and uh, commitment, 
I think it's important not to work too much. So as a rule of thumb, I never work nights and weekends. I spend the time with my wife and our three children, and they give me the joy uh, and energy uh, to stay focused and efficient during the day so that, that I'm concentrated, focused, uh, committed, and, and, uh, and can uh, achieve a lot uh, within a, a short time span. I think those are two very good pieces of advice. And I think I have to get myself one of those nobodies. <laughs> so, Frederick, as you mentioned a little earlier, you've just turned 36 and you've already achieved a lot in your career. You have a PhD degree in uh, Old Testament studies. You also have uh, what we sometimes uh, call the big doctor in Denmark, which is um, a doctor of theology, which is the highest uh, academic uh, degree that you can achieve in the Danish university system. And it's, it's not that familiar outside Denmark, but for our international viewers, we can say that it's It's roughly similar to the German habilitation. Uh, so you got that already in 2018? Uh, 19, last year. 2019. And um, so now you have the Nusklim Award. What is next for you? Uh, what's, what's your next goal? Uh, my net, next research goal is to develop my current individual project on these stories about Jews in a non-Jewish context into a larger research uh, project um, on uh, Jewish settlements outside of Jerusalem in the centuries after the destruction of the temple, uh, what we can call the diaspora, the, the early Jewish diaspora societies in Egypt and in Babylon and in, in Persia. And there I would like to look at a broad range of texts. At the moment, I'm studying these small stories, almost like short stories or novellas. Uh, but we have a lot of other texts dealing with issues uh, in these uh, centuries. Um, we have the uh, books, uh, the Ezra and Nehemiah, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, where we follow two Jews who live at foreign courts but travel back to Jerusalem in order to restore the temple and the city and in order to rebuild the society there. So there is a different view of diaspora where leadership is placed in the diaspora and the homeland is uh, the one in need of direction and guidance. And then we have the prophetic texts and there we find a very clear uh, call for return. And this is very interesting because in the, the stories I study at the moment, the return to the land of the ancestor plays no role at all. For Esther and Mordechai, their life in Susa, or Susa where they live, is the place where they feel at home, where they belong. I mean, Jerusalem is just uh, out of mind. But in the prophetic literature, we constantly have the call uh, for return. Uh, in the book of Isaiah, uh, some of the chapters uh, were uh, some decades ago ascribed to an independent prophet, the prophet of the exile, calling his companions in, in uh, Babylon to return. 
Um, and we often teach our students that these chapters were written in Babylon and then people brought them back home to Jerusalem and they became a part of the, uh, of the big uh, Isaiah scroll. But perhaps if you look at who, who would be interested in the people from the diaspora to return, it could be the homeland community. So although we have texts where the prophets are situated or located in exile, in the diaspora, calling for people to return, these texts perhaps represent the, the perspective of the homeland community. A community which is desperately for economic resources and for help. And this is a way of, it's a kind of propaganda in, in order to, uh, to bring uh, people home. Um, and in addition to the biblical texts that we have in the Old Testament, uh, we have a lot of small witnesses um, from texts outside of the Bible um, due to uh, archaeological surveys in Babylon, for instance, in, and in, uh, in Egypt, where we have evidence of these small Jewish uh, settlements and evidence which points in a different direction than the impression we get by reading the text in the Bible. So this project would also match what we know uh, from texts outside of the Bible with the representations of, uh, of the diaspora in the Bible. So this is the huge, prop, uh, the huge pro project that, that, I, that I hope to, to, um, um, to be able to realize in the coming years. But for many years, I have worked on prophetic text and poetic text. And in the recent year, I have then turned to the narratives. And that is fascinating to read the biblical narratives. So I myself, as a, a scholar, would like to, to go to other famous narrative, narratives in the Bible. Uh, for instance, the David story. And I know, Anne, you are very familiar with the David story in, in the book of Samuel. And it's, it's like an opera with, with, with drama and with songs and, and beautiful scenes and a, a, a lot of suspense and um, also a theological witness. Um, so it has everything in the book of Samuel. So I would like to turn, turn, turn to David. Perhaps not in the twenties, in the thirties, perhaps when I have time for it, but but certainly the the, the uh, David story is is uh, something that I need to study carefully. And then finally, a, a very big project is uh, is a commentary on the Book of Isaiah. I uh, I have studied Isaiah most of most of my career until now, and it's uh, such a fascinating and complex book. And there, of course, there are many commentaries already, but the, in a way, the, 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 the biblical commentary is the, um, is the big thing that you can leave behind for, for the next generation. So, and it will probably take 10 or 20 years to write, but let's see. That, at least it's, it's a dream to, uh, to do that. That is that's true. The commentary in biblical studies is, is uh, that's often... Um almost the, the memorial that people uh, leave, leave behind in a way. Uh, but I've also noticed uh, when I teach students that aren't theology students that the commentary is not necessarily familiar to all. So just, just to follow up on that, what exactly is a commentary in biblical studies? 
uh, a commentary in biblical studies is a is a handbook that you can use when you study the text in uh, Hebrew. It often has a uh, it it of, it uh, it often follows the chapters of the biblical book, and you have a uh, a translation and you have considerations on textual issues, and uh, you consider a lot about the form of the text. Uh, uh, the passage, um, the historical literary context of it, and then you have a verse-to-verse -verse analysis where you go uh, through the, uh, the single verses and you make observation to the words used and to the motives and you, you see where, where does this word or, mo uh, or motive occur elsewhere and, um, and so on. So it, it's a handbook often used. A few people read a whole commentary uh, because that that's not the point. It, it, it's something like a dictionary that that you can uh, that that can help you uh, read and understand the text. You also mentioned as uh, as the first part of your tripart plan, if I can call it that, that uh, you'd like to uh, to continue your research on uh, displacement and and being away from home and being happy with it, or uh, or being away from home and being unhappy with it. Um, and you mentioned how this would be a larger project than what you've done so far. How do you mean that it'll be larger? Would it involve other people than yourself as a, as a collaborative research project? Or does it mean that, that you'd start simply working on, and I don't mean simply as, as a small thing, but, but basically to expand the group of text and material that you're working on in the project? I, my vision is, is a team where uh, with different worlds, a couple of PhD students becoming experts in some of the key biblical texts, and uh, uh, a postdoc perhaps from uh, archaeology, uh, Near Eastern studies, with a, with an expertise in in uh, in societies, because um, key questions when reading these texts are also how was the imperial structures. In, the, in, in these days. First it was the, the, the Babylonian Empire and then the Persian Empire and they conquered Egypt. So the Persian Empire was in fact the, the, uh, the, the entire context for, for, um, for the emergence of, uh, of these texts. Uh, and, and to have an expert from the outside, from outside biblical scholars who brings uh, knowledge and expertise uh, from other fields, it would, would be very good. And uh, also uh, one um, specialized in, in modern migration studies or diaspora studies who can bring uh, methodology and theory to the group as a whole would, would be very good. So again, interdisciplinary in nature, certainly. That sounds wonderful. I, I really hope that uh, you'll be able to bring that group together so that you can do that work. Well, we're approaching the, the end of our um, of our time together and the last question I I wanted to uh, to put to you is about the direction that our field is uh, is moving in um, the field of Hebrew Bible studies that has been around for at least in its its current sort of early modern form for at least two to three hundred years but of course the texts have been here for so much longer um, how do you see the future of our field? What direction are we moving in? And also, what are the challenges that are posed to us as 
theologians and also as biblical scholars. Our field is developing intensively in these years. And there are a lot of opportunities, but also some challenges. Um, one challenge, I think, is that it's becoming more and more difficult to master the field um, due to two things. The first one is the manifold of new perspectives. In a way, Hebrew Bible scholarship uh, is being globalized at the moment uh, because historically, as you said, the, the, the critical investigation of the Bible was uh, primarily done in Protestant countries. Nordic countries, Germany, uh, the Netherlands, uh, England, the US, South Africa, Australia. But now, and this is a very important development, people from Eastern Europe, from Asia, from Africa, join the international conversation about Bible interpretation. And they are new readers, they bring new questions to the texts, and they uh, bring new observations to the uh, table uh, when we are discussing the texts. So this is really an opportunity for our field at the moment that so many voices uh, are joined uh, or enter into the dialogue. But again, it's a challenge then really to, to have the overview of what is going on. A second thing is that we also experience specialization. And of course, it has always been here. Uh, texts are studied, verses are studied, even words are studied. And it's, it's not unfamiliar in, in our field to, to have a, 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 a scientific article uh, which discusses the meaning of one word in 30 pages or so. Uh, so it has always been there. But it, it also happens that um, some of, of the key areas become sub-disciplines or sub-areas of studies. For instance, uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, which is a very fascinating field and which, which has the potential to bring a lot of insight to the interpretation of the Bible. But sometimes it lives alive on its own. It's, it's almost independent of, the, uh, of Old Testament uh, studies. Uh, perhaps you can say that if you enter the cave of the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's, it's very difficult to come out again. And um, when you ask for a direction of the field, what I would hope for is focus. And that is because perhaps because of my religious background. But for me, the focus is the book and the text that we have. And all that we do should help us to understand this collection of texts. Um, so somehow ensure the connection between the general study of the, of the Hebrew Bible Old Testament and then the more specialized areas like archaeology or um, uh, Dead Sea Scrolls or Samaritan studies and so on, so that we in a way all work together in, in order to understand uh, this collection of, of scriptures. So if I understand you correctly, the risk for our field right now is in a way that we, we stop being part of the same conversation. Um, and that means that, that we'll miss out. We won't have the benefit of the insights that other people um, get to in their work. So what, 
how do we do it? Have you have you given him any thought to that? So how how can we actually um, how can we actually be sure that we still take part in the same conversation? Would that be by agreeing on the text that we should all work on, or is that how you imagine it? An advice for for future scholars, at least, could be, I think, two things. Don't be afraid to approach the classical texts. And in my view, uh, I'm really shaped by reception and Christian reception here. But some of the central texts are Genesis, Psalms and Isaiah. Uh, books or texts that are complex and because of reception and the scholarly discussion, the, the literature is overwhelming. And I think some might be afraid to enter into to this discussion because they're just there are just too many opinions and, and, and too much that you need to uh, to master. And um, I, I can give you a, an example. Um, Ecole Biblique in Jerusalem is a very famous library where I love to work when I'm there. And they have two floors filled with books. And when you enter into it, you think the first thing I thought was the how can I read all these books? Uh, it's impossible, right? And the second thing, uh, why should I write? Because everything must be in there. And, and then I continued again. And uh, for instance, in my, in my own study of Isaiah, I think I have worked on Isaiah now for at least 12 years. And I feel now that I begin to sense what the book of Isaiah is about. And I understand the general positions in, uh, in scholarship. Um, so don't be afraid to do it. It takes time, but, but it, uh, it, it's rewarding. And my second advice is don't be afraid to ask the big questions. Questions like, um, what is the key theme in the Old Testament, as you said? Are there one? Um, what is the book about? What, what has the role of these uh, texts been in our world and or what role should they play? Uh, what, this, what do they say about God, about uh, us as human, about the world we, we live in? And I'll say it is possible to work with the classic text and to work on the big questions. It's all a, a matter of focus and uh, delimination really to, to sharpen what you're looking for. So, so it is possible. What about you, Anne? What, what are your thoughts about uh, the way that our field uh, develops at the moment? Well, I absolutely see your point about how we become insular in a way. And, 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 and to some extent, that the, the conversations we take part in as, as individual scholars become too far removed from each other. And, and I, I do see that as a, as a problem, a possible problem, uh, because, because we lose something um, as a scholarly community. Um, but but as, you, as you know, one of my pet things of, as, is also um, the question of method and, and how we develop our methods in the field. And here I think our conversation today has touched upon many things that I find is, is particularly relevant here because we've talked about how 
we keep asking new questions or pose new questions to these texts that's been around for for such a long time and 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 how uh, sometimes modern issues and challenges and also modern perspectives may help us to discover new things in the texts uh, because the amazing thing I find about biblical studies is that although these texts have been studied for more than 2000 years and by several religious communities and also by several scholarly communities and although as you say you can fill a whole library with books about the book of Isaiah but we still manage to discover new things about Isaiah I mean you've done that yourself recently and and to pose new questions to to the to the Hebrew Bible so in that development of adapting the questions we pose to the texts um, to our time I think it's it's really important that we keep adapting our methods our work methods as well so so to me that's one of the most important challenges because um, method consciousness in a way is is a new relatively new thing in biblical studies because it used to be just very well educated people reading texts really thoroughly and really well and and that worked very well for a long time but but I think in order to make sure that we can still have that conversation with each other as a field but also with the other fields and to do the interdisciplinary research that you've described uh, during our conversation as well I think we need to to keep a focus on uh, method and method development but I don't know what are your thoughts about that certainly the question of method is important and it goes back to a very fundamental thing uh, the questions that we ask what what do we want to know when we uh, read what are we looking for and method consciousness uh, as you say and um, of course this is not a new thing in biblical scholarship in a way it has always been there that that of course you you um, bring questions that are um, relevant of your own time to the text and methodology from other uh, areas um, and I remember a conference where one said that uh, we often say that 50 or 70 years ago it was much easier because everything was redaction criticism. That is, um, how did the exact text that we have come into being? Uh, how did it develop from a single word to a literary text? And then he added, but it was so boring. <laughs> uh, so. Of course, it is an opportunity and a richness with all these new perspectives and, uh, and all new questions and new methods brought to the same core of texts. And perhaps the thing we should remember is just to keep reading because that's what we have. We have a collection of texts that hardly changes. It, they are the same and readers before us encountered the same text and readers after us will encounter the same text so keep the focus on the text but also of course consider what you ask for and how you ask i think that's a good strategy and it's certainly not boring one final thing i'd like to address um, 
was what you said about working on the classical texts. And you mentioned as examples of classical texts, the book of Genesis, the book of Psalms and the book of Isaiah. And in a way, those are also the Hebrew Bible texts that play an important role in, in the New Testament as well, the Greek Bible. Um, but then I can't help thinking about the question of canon, that the Bible we have today is a result of a of historical process of canonization sometime in the first century CE. Um, a group of theologians de de decided that the, that the Bible we have today should look as it does, more or less. Um, so in a way, that's a historical process, a historical development that came quite a bit later than when the texts themselves were written down, although it had probably developed over um, several centuries. So the texts that we consider classic today, were they necessarily classic at the time of writing as well? And should we, as biblical scholars, should we focus on the text that we see as classic or should we try to take that historical development into account as well and, and, and in a way try to think outside the textual box and not limit ourselves too much to the classical texts? I think I'm very pragmatic. We should do both. Um, we should stay with the classics and um, you're right that Genesis, Psalms and Isaiah are the books most uh, mostly used by the New Testament authors. And if you go to the to Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls, where we have copies of biblical texts, these are also among uh, the the, uh, the texts that they of which they have most copies. That is that they used uh, most. And if you go to rabbinic tradition and Christian tradition, um, these books are highlights. Perhaps because Genesis is a we have all the the, um, the stories, uh, the basic stories about uh, creation and Abraham and Joseph, and the Psalms are um, Psalms used in service, and in the Book of Isaiah uh, we find uh, words and images that have been foundational in the development of uh, imagery in Jewish Christian um, religions. Um, so there is a reason why these texts, why the particular, these, these texts are the, the one that, that stand out in, uh, in, uh, due to the course of, of uh, reception. Um, but it's also, as you say, important to remember uh, that this might be a later development. And if you go to the Old Testament itself and ask what are important texts, or what were important texts in the universe of the people who, who wrote them and, and, and lived in these societies. Uh, it, might, it might turn out to be other books. Um, the book of Leviticus, for instance, uh, with all the descriptions of, of, uh, of activities in the temple, whether they are actually descriptions or perhaps theological reflections, at least uh, the, the whole concern about how to, to have a temple and, and how to do things right in the cult and so on were, of course, very important uh, at the days that, that these texts were written and, and certainly belongs uh, 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 or, or form a, a corner of, uh, of the text that we study. In, uh, although in church, in church reception, for instance, they have played um, 
uh, a lower um, or had, uh, they had had a, a lower significance than, than other uh, texts. Certainly. I'm, I'm glad I, uh, I could lure you into mentioning uh, Leviticus because, as you know, it's, it's one of my personal favorites. So thank you for that. Um, we're approaching um, the end of our conversation, and I must say it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Frederik, and to get to know you more and also uh, to, to know more about your research and uh, your plans uh, for the future. So I just want to thank you very much uh, for our conversation and also again to wish you a warm congratulations on being this year's uh, Nils Klim uh, laureate. It's really very well done and, and very, very well deserved. So congratulations and thank you. Thank you very much, Anne.